Hey folks, I've got a few Searchers albums, just old records, you know, I picked up for a dollar or two along the way, and I've always loved them because they are just a very interesting, you know, made in that time where bands played live a tremendous amount and then went into the studio and very quickly cut records, mostly covering their favorite songs, and there was kind of this canon of songs that sort of like the generation before there was the Great American Songbook, there was this kind of mixture of songs. Some were sort of R&B songs, mostly R&B songs that white folks, white groups took up and played just these covers that got covered endless times. And then some of them bands were covering another band's arrangement. So covers of covers of covers. Uh, and I just always like that. You know, bands had to put out two or three albums a year some sometimes, uh, and so they couldn't write enough songs, and so they would just record their live set basically in a studio session. Anyway, I've just for some reason I've always go back to those few Searchers albums that I have, uh, and just enjoy their kind of tossed offness. You know, I kind of like that. Uh, anyway, we interviewed Frank Allen in 2007 in December, just about uh, ten years ago. And he's back on the program today to talk about a new reissue of their two records that came out in uh, 1979 and 1980 on the Sire Records label. So what you're going to hear first is our interview uh, from 2018. And then when that's over, you'll hear our interview from late 2007. So uh, they're mostly not particularly redundant because I actually did you a favor and listened to the old interview before I did the new one for a change, and uh, I tried not to do too much that was redundant. So you get to hear two of Frank Allen, just super nice guy, great memory, uh, and lately I've really come to appreciate that after recently interviewing a few people whose memory maybe wasn't 100% so clear. Uh, you can check out uh, their website, which is the-searchers.co.uk, and get information about their uh, concert schedule, etc., and their recordings, etc. So here is Interview with Frank Allen. Stay tuned. Check WFMU.org slash Michael, of course, for the archives, thousands of uh, shows and hundreds of interviews there for your listening pleasure anytime. Uh, talk to you soon. Here is Frank Allen. So there is The Searchers Don't Hang On, and as I mentioned, it's from their new release called Another Night, The Sire Recordings, 1979 to 1981, just out on the Omnivore label. And uh, Frank Allen, welcome back to the program. How you doing? Well, good to be on the program. Thank you for having me on. You were on the show about 10 years ago, and we discussed your entire life story and uh, the the whole history of The Searchers. Uh, today, I want to sort of concentrate on this new this new recording, uh, but I, I do need to go back a little bit and sort of set the table what life was like just before this happened. Uh, but let's start with this great song, uh, Don't Hang On. It's one of the ones that you guys in the band wrote and that you sing the lead vocals on, right? It's the one I wrote. It's the only one I wrote. What we tend to do is when we're writing for we didn't write an awful lot of the songs on this, but whenever we get the chance to record, then we always try and bring in some compositions of our own and get to, you know get more advanced in the sphere of songwriting. And uh, we tend to write separately. John McNally will write his, and then I'll write mine, and then maybe Spencer will write one. And then we um, combine when we do the arrangement um, and put down the track. And uh, Don't Hang On was... Yeah, it was, it was uh, the song that I wrote, so I was quite very pleased that you played that. Quite a surprise. But you guys share writing credit. Is that just so that to keep everyone... Yeah, because it, it's, it stops anyone um, having... Um, well, you get unreasonable arguments. Everyone thinks their song is the best, you know, and 
and and if one person shouts the loudest then they get more than the others and it's kind of unfair really you know so we all agreed very very early on to say the arguments about how many songs a person's got on the show on the uh, record that we would um, share the credits and it seems to be a pretty fair way to do it because in the end everyone has their say in the arrangement and what finally turns a thing into a good song apart from just the basics. It seems like that is sort of in keeping with the general spirit of this band from uh, all of my research is that you're basically a bunch of nice level-headed guys. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly compared to some... Yeah, we are quite. Yeah, when you, when you compare us to some of the bands that spent all their careers fighting and beating the hell out of each other, no, we're much more civilized than that. Um, but we are sensible enough to realize that you've got to look at things in certain ways so that you save all of those arguments and you kind of nip things in the bud. And this works pretty well for us. Yeah, it sounds it sounds smart. Uh, you are from West London, and for years, uh, three years, you played with Cliff Bennett and the Revel Rousers. Cliff Bennett, if people don't know, is sort of one of the great voices. Uh, the guy was just kind of a, a blue-eyed soul guy with a real kind of cracking band. Uh, how did you go from uh, being born to playing with Cliff Bennett and the Revel Rousers? Um, well, um, I went through the normal uh, procedure of when rock and roll and what we had over here, Skiffle as well, came out. Um, buying a guitar, or getting my parents to buy me a guitar, learning chords from friends and gradually getting better. And I was obsessed with music. I'll never be obsessed as obsessed with music again. That, that 50s period was really the most exciting time ever for me. And, um, you know, you got into little bands, got to play in bigger places. And I was taken... I think it was in about uh, the end of, no, it was about 1959. I was taken to see this band called the Rebel Rousers. Um, in, at that time, it was uh, very much a semi-pro band. And they were the best thing I'd ever seen. And Cliff was the, the most amazing voice. Just they were all so much better than any other band on our local scene at the time. And I started hanging about with them. I wanted to be in that band. And I started doing their interval periods at the uh, the local clubs. And eventually, when a guy left, I got the chance to... Um, well, talk my way into the band, really, is what it happened. And uh, there, there I was, 1961, I was suddenly a rebel rouser, which I had wanted to be. You're still a teenager at that point, right? Yeah, I was. I was um, 17 at that point. Now, I know that Cliff Bennett, uh, and when you were in the band, went up to Hamburg. It seems like it was sort of a lot of fun, a lot of work. Tell me... Were you guys on fire? Did it, you know, did it make you guys a better band playing those uh, long nights and long sets? Um, yes, it improved our uh, repertoire because you did have long nights and long sets. So, you know, not as mu- not as long as in the early days when the Beatles first played out in Hamburg, because in those days, clubs would only book maybe one band or two bands, at least at the Star Club, which was a really professional setup. They had a, probably about six um, unknown bands and then maybe a few of the uh, real American star artists or from elsewhere around the world. I mean, I got to play out in the Star Club with... Um, the Everly Brothers with Bo Diddley. I backed Bo Diddley on bass while I was out there. Um, Joey D and the Starlighters, uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, uh, uh, Gene Vincent, so many people. It was a fantastic time. Um, it was enjoyable and it was hard work. It was a bit wasted on me because I was very insular at that time. I was absolutely teetotal, absolutely drug-free, which I always have been, still am. I'm not teetotal now, but at that time... I was a very tight, wound up sort of person, and I didn't really fit into that, um, you know, that company of 
mad musicians who are kind of debauching themselves all over the places. So I look on that as a missed opportunity because I was very, very homesick. And I remember spending my month or six weeks out there at a time kind of just looking forward to the day where I could get on the plane and go home and, and mix with all my friends and things again. But now I could happily go out and play at the Star Club as it was for four or five weeks, six weeks. It was the most remarkable place, and uh, I just wish I'd have appreciated it more at the time. Let's talk about, you You said you, you backed Bo Diddley. Uh, I, I think you sat in on bass at the Star Club. Yep. He's one of my favorites, just kind of a crazy genius, you know, from different planet. What was that like, and did he appreciate you? He was a lovely guy, but really, really nice guy. He was um, fun to talk to fun to be on stage with the music i actually have to say was incredibly boring to play because you know you just did that boom 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 on one note virtually for the whole song or for several songs there are very few chord changes in it mm. we didn't have a rehearsal he didn't carry a band he had jerome and the duchess and he used whatever drummer or bass player he could find at the club and the and they, in this case, they both came from the Rebel Rousers. But it was fun. He was telling me about how he, um, to save money, he had all his on-stage suits made out of old curtain material and things <laughs> like that. And, uh, and when, you know, he, I think he played there for either one night or two nights. And uh, went in to see him afterwards, and he said, would you come on tour with me in England? And I had to point out that I was actually in a professional band, and we did have commitments. So I wasn't free to just go, um, you know, following off and doing it but he yeah he asked me to do the tour in england as his bass player lovely yeah. guy yeah it would have been fun i know that you crossed paths with gene vincent what was he like mad mad and dangerous um i mean he was an idol of mine i have to say um our, uh, gene vincent record was the second record i ever bought um the first one was heartbreak hotel the second one was bebop Palula. gene vincent was a fantastic um recording artist and he was kind of he really was groundbreaking at the time, but he was a very troubled person, a very off-the-wall person. He, he carried a gun, he carried knives, he was always trying to show his strength to people and really out of control, so you have to be very, very wary of him, but he was still an idol. <laughs> it sounds like fun. So this this whole Hamburg scene sounds like it would separate the men from the boys, sort of. Was there a band who was the best? I mean, beside the Beatles, besides uh, Cliff Bennett, who was the best? Um, well, of the unknown bands outside Cliff Bennett, I think the big three from Liverpool, and they never quite made it. They didn't show, they didn't achieve the potential that they showed. Um, they were actually great. And they were always thought of very highly, very, very up there, you know, just below the Beatles. King Size Taylor and the Dominoes were great. He was a very imposing person. Of the American acts that we played with, the surprise one was Joey D and the Starlighters, who we thought of just a, a, an inconsequential twist band, you know, a pop act. But Joey D was a real soul artist, especially when it got into the early hours of the morning and he went from doing the twist stuff into, oh, the night time is the right time and drowning my own tears and all those old Ray Charles things. He was wonderful. Of course, the other um, genius from the Star Club was uh, Tony Sheridan who was also mad, but, but, but fantastic. A great performer, again, a great soul voice, and a really, really talented guitarist. 
So you were the guy who uh, did not go crazy in Hamburg, and it seems like the rest of the searchers were of, of a similar frame of mind, and, and, and so you became friendly with them uh, during your time in Hamburg, and then uh, when their bass player leaves, they ask you to join, and they'd had some huge hits, of course, Sweets for My Sweet and Sugar and Spice and Needles and Pins, etc., uh, etc., et so immediately you record When You Walk in the Room, which you share lead vocals on, I believe, with Mike Pender. Uh, That's right. Did, uh, did Tony which Mike, has, which Mike has conveniently forgotten, by the way. Oh, yeah? He, I find he, it quite funny. He's, he's actually forgotten that we did the lead voice. Um, Tony Hatch is still alive to verify the fact, by the way, but uh, I think he's chosen to forget, really. But, you know, not a big deal. Who picked the songs back in those days? The band or the producer Tony Hatch or a mixture? No, in the main it was uh, Chris Curtis, who was the musical... Um, were genius of the band. He, he had a great knowledge of music, but everyone had their input. You could, you know, you could have your say and ve- maybe not veto, but you could uh, give your opinion. But Chris was very highly thought of, and while he had his finger on the pulse, then uh, the band did very, very well. Of course, later on, you know, his choices were maybe not so hot, and uh, you know, when you start having bad choices, it's a bit difficult to recover. But he was a great guy, a lovely um, arranger of harmony, and he found some beautiful album tracks in those early days, you know, if not singles. Um, yeah, he, he, was the, he was the main selector of our single records. Yeah, I agree. The, the Searchers albums are filled with uh, a, a real wide uh, variety of different kinds of tunes, all sort of arranged in this uh, Searchers-y way. So let's go back to uh, when you walk in the room. Is a track like that... Uh, cut a hundred percent live. Are there overdubs? Are the vocals live? How was it? How long did it take? It was done in four tracks. That's all we had at the time. We, um, I don't think we went to eight. We came across a time where we could link one four-track machine to another four-track machine, but I, that we didn't use that one when you walk in the room. What we would do is we would lay down a backing track, and then we would lay down a vocal track. Um, we would add some instruments on. We only had one extra guide. We would lay out whatever other instruments we wanted on the backing track, and then we would put another set of vocal tracks down. So there were four tracks in all, which was pretty adventurous for the time. I mean, the first two albums were just done straight on two-track machine, you know, play, sing at the same time, get it balanced right, and that was it. Do you have all the 45s, all the LPs? Did you? It seems like you, you've written about the band. You've written a book called The Searchers and Me. Uh, you've written a couple of books, but you seem to be the, mm. the band historian. Do you, do uh, you yeah, collect? Yeah, I am that. I, I don't keep all of our records, absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm not um, very um, insistent on that. I've got a load of the albums in there, so i pretty much got all of our recordings, but I haven't got every single single, every yeah, every single record that we made in the right order and, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> the Dutch edition, etc., etc. Yeah, it goes on forever. Uh, I noticed one thing that I thought was interesting is Love Potion 9, your absolute biggest hit in the USA, not even a single in the UK. It's funny how record companies work. Yeah, it was never considered as a single. It was just an album track, and and as far as everyone, you know, looked on it, not a particularly outstanding one, but it just shows the the difference in taste between maybe England and America. I want to remind folks that uh, Frank Allen of The Searchers is our guest, and he was on the program December 2007. Uh, you can check that out over at WFMU.org slash Michael if you want to hear that, and we have kind of go into detail about all kinds of things. One of the things I, I always 
sort of maybe I'm over romanticizing it, but that time when bands came and were in package shows in uh, you know the theaters in Brooklyn and New York City and stuff. Tell me what it was like your first trip to New York and uh, who who the best band besides the Searchers were who were on one of those bills. Oh, that was that was the most amazing thing ever. I joined the Searchers on August the third, nineteen sixty four. We went pretty much straight into the studios within a couple of weeks to record when you walk in the room, and we got that out on release. And then we set off for my first ever trip to. America. The others had been there um, twice before that year. They went to do the Ed Sullivan show, then they came back, and then they went out for a, a trip across country, and not a long tour out there, but with people like the Dovells and, and uh, Dick and Dee Dee. So they'd seen the States, but I hadn't. So it's pretty exciting. And we were over there, well, the first week was going to be a week at the Fox Theater in Brooklyn, and we were doing six shows a day, every day. And, I mean, this comes as no surprise to Americans, but it was really the most amazing thing to us. You would never get a show like that in England, you know, six shows a day. We used to do two at the very most. But it was um, six, uh, 10 in the morning till 10 at night, and the bill was just um, mind-boggling. It was The Searchers, Dusty Springfield, Millie, Marvin Gaye, the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, Smokey and the Miracles, The Temptations, The Contours, Little Anthony, uh, The Ronettes, The Shangri-Las, The Dovells, Jay and the Americans, and The New Beats. I mean, this is like we died and gone to heaven to be on a show with all... And we were, to all intents and purposes, topping the bill because everything that was British you know, was, you know, number one in the world at that time. Um, of the people that really impressed, well, so many of them, really... Well, Marvin was fantastic, of course, and Marvin, if he'd have stayed alive, would be filling arenas in the UK now. Um, you know, it was just such a shame that you know, people come to such unfortunate ends. Uh, the Ronettes were my particular favourite. I always loved Ronettes records. I loved the whole Phil Spector sound. I loved Ronnie's voice, and uh, I got quite close to Nedra at that time as well. Um, and... Uh, Temptations were great. There were very few people on that show who weren't impressive to us um, young lads coming from England. So um, hard to pick favourites, but I suppose that would, yeah, that would be it more or less to me. Marvin, the Ronettes, Temptations. It sounds unbelievably fabulous. He had died and gone to heaven to, to and get to see it six times a day if if you like. Uh, so uh, the the 60s move on and times change really quickly. Now, you know, the Beatles managed to to change with the times, or maybe they even led the sort of changes that were happening. Other bands had a harder time, and I think the Searchers were one of those bands that, I don't know, just the, the public just couldn't accept them as hippies or as hipsters, uh, and that sort of happy-go-lucky image was no longer, you know, people just sort of weren't as interested in it. Uh, when I mean, could you, it must have been a, a downtime for the band. Yeah, we saw the uh, record slip in the charts. And, uh, you know, once you lose that, the knack of picking the right song, and if you don't take your time, well, our problem was that they expected releases pretty constantly. And instead of hanging on and waiting until we actually had the right song, um, but instead we were saying, well, we've got this one, should we give this a go? Um, it was the wrong way to look at it. We should have been much more careful. And if you have... One hit, you can cut. If you want to have one, um, you know, uh, sort of flop, I was going to say, not such a flop, but a lower in the charts song, then you have to be very careful about the next one. And if you aren't careful about that one and that slips down, then it's so much harder to come by, come back from. 
as the 60s changed and bands like the Searchers slipped a little bit, uh, uh, you guys sort of made do in, in what you call the cabaret scene. I'm not sure I know if there is a U.S. equivalent to, to that. Can you describe what that, what that circuit was like? Yeah, maybe not. It's pretty much like the club scene, although the club scene in America is a bit more kind of barroomy, a bit more rough. The cabaret scene was for respectable urban adults to go and enjoy various types of entertainments in a club setting. You know, it'd be very semi-formal. They'd be sitting, they'd probably have a, um, a light meal and then and a drink and a dance, and then they would watch the top of the bill act that would come on around about 10 or 11 at night. And... um we had to change from just being a pop act that went on playing six songs and getting screamed at to a band that had to somehow hold the attention of an audience who wasn't going to scream and who would applaud at the end of your songs if they liked what they heard. And it was, uh, it was looked on pretty much as the group's graveyard by a lot of people, and it was the the uh, precursor to the end of your career, really. But in fact, on reflection, what it was, it was a bit of a university education for ourselves, for me in particular, because I suddenly became the front man when Chris Curtis left. So all through that period, I learned how to handle an audience. And, and we all learned how to vary our show and give it light and shade and pace Instead of just doing six songs, we now do two hours on stage, and uh, it's all very, very carefully arranged. So it was um, an unadventurous time, but also a very great time on, on reflection. And my life seems to be concentrated on reflections, doesn't it? I mean, the Star Club I could have enjoyed more, and the cabaret circuit was um, a very important part uh, in hindsight. Yeah. Uh, I don't know much about your personal life. Did you manage to raise a family during all of this? No, no, I raised me. <laughs> That's it. It was just me. That was my advantage. I didn't have a family. I didn't get married. I didn't, uh, I didn't live with anyone at all. I've always lived totally on my own, which is how I like it. I'm a very insular person. And so I had no responsibilities to anyone. It was much harder for, um, for the others. Mike and John, uh, when they were out at the Star Club, they spent all their evenings riding home to their girlfriends, whom they eventually married and are still married to today. You know, they were... Yeah, those women were amazing because I think they found the only two faithful musicians in the world. Um, it's quite incredible. So I don't know how they, it must have been much harder for them being away so much and the wives having to cope on their own. Yeah. So the end of the 70s come come around and uh, you make these two records for Sire Records. Uh, now, I believe from uh from reading the liner notes that this started with Seymour Stein, who was the head of Sire Records. He was simply just a fan of the band and kind of checked out what you guys were into and said, yes, I think we can make a contemporary sounding record that will still sound like a, a searcher's record. Is that kind of the way it happened? Seymour was a, a Britpop um, fan. He was, a, he was a fan of the British invasion, British music in general, and the Beatles, everyone from them downwards. And they were just talking about it and our name got brought up and, uh, he suddenly discovered that the searchers weren't recording anymore. So he said, well, that's a shame because, they're, you know, they're one of the legendary bands. And would they be interested? And then we said we certainly would. And they came down to see us in England. They, they came to see um, as when we were doing what we have talked about, the cabaret circuit, which I don't think impressed them too much. And they said, well, we'll look beyond that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think we can do this. So I went and had a meeting with the Seymour. Uh, 
and uh, discussed how we saw ourselves and how he saw us. And he said, yeah, let's go for it. So that was it. We uh, were soon, pretty soon we were in the studios recording in a manner that we'd never recorded before in the, in the, in the modern manner with state-of-the-art equipment at that time and living at the studios, living, eating, sleeping, breathing there and uh, really creating something exciting. Ah, yes, you guys went up to Rockfield Studios uh, yep. and recorded these two albums, which were released under sort of different names and a, and a few different times, or different names in in the UK. And, yeah, originally and- the first release was just re- uh, released as The Searchers. It didn't have a picture of us, uh, but it didn't do it. We got fantastic press. The press couldn't have been more thrilled, and same as we have just had for this new release of them as well, strange enough. Someone sent me a review that just said, you've got to have these records. Anyway, going back to that, the press was wonderful. DJs wouldn't touch it, so the uh, first release of the first album just slipped by, and then uh, the people at Sire said, well, we don't think this has been promoted properly, and it's, uh, we don't want to waste it, so we're going to withdraw it, and we'll go in, we'll... we'll um, add two more songs, redo the sleeve, and they did with the black and white sleeve with a picture of us, wasn't it? Then it came out as The the Searchers, and it was released again. Again, it a um, lot of great press, but it didn't uh, do anything sales-wise. But they, they were very honorable, and they put us in for what was officially our second album, and uh, same thing happened. They're, they're, honestly, they're, those two albums for Sire were certainly the best recordings we've ever made in our career and that's taken into consideration the early hits although you can't beat the early hits because they were made very simply very naively but they had such freshness and such originality that you aren't actually going to beat those you're just going to another period when you're going to make a, a different kind of product but it is going to be as far as we're concerned excellent yeah, oh, it's funny. I was listening to Needles and Pins, speaking of the naiveness of those early records, and I swear I can hear the squeaky kick drum pedal. Oh, the squeaky bass drum. Yes, that's yeah. that's quite legendary. People love the squeaky bass drum. I've never <laughs> actually listened to it. I must listen to it sometime, but it's been mentioned several times. But you know, those were the days when you couldn't just um, take that that track down because it was on the it was on the drum track. So if you didn't want the squeaky bass drum, you'd have to go in and re-record the drums again. So this this has some great contemporary songs that fit the band really well. Again, is who picked the songs for for these two releases? Uh, we all did. Well, my, we we it it was a uh, Mike. Uh, John and myself mainly. Billy was at these sessions, but he didn't really. Billy was a. Uh, Actually, I suppose, you know, for all the time he was with us, he was basically a hired drummer. You know, nice guy, but he was a hired drummer. So Mike and John and I owned the band, and we had all the say, really. And we sat down with um, Pat Moran, who was the producer, and we went through all the demos that he'd acquired. And between us, we decided which ones were worth giving a go. There's a lot of songs that sort of have something to do with the Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe sort of family of bands. Were you guys a fan of those bands before you visited Rockfield? I think it was, it was the, uh, not necessarily of those bands. They're all great bands, but I, I was never a, a particular devotee. But it was that time when guitar bands were still very much in vogue, the new wave thing. There were a lot of bands on Stiff and Sire and all the other records where the um, real acoustic playing, you know, proper guitars, proper drums and good tunes, um, a bit of harmony, but with the edge that um, 
that uh, kind of separated it from the early 60s things. It was new wave, I suppose everyone called it, and we were, to all ex- intents and purposes, a part of the new wave at that time. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I like Dave Edmonds. I know that Ed, they brought Ed Stasium, who's been a guest on this show, uh, over for the second of the Sire Records. He worked with the Ramones, a lot, tons and tons of bands, the Smithereens, some real, real high power uh, sounding bands. Uh, did he change the sound much? Well, he gave it a bit more punch, and that's what he was brought in for. Although Pat Moran did a wonderful job, and together they did an incredible job. Um, I think the sound on that on the uh, the second album, the uh, play for today, was certainly more powerful. Yeah. Uh, so as you prepare a reissue, I, there's uh, liner notes by our own Scott Schinder. There's some uh, bonus tracks and stuff. You must be happy with the package. Absolutely thrilled with it. I played it in the car and it brought home to me how excited we were at the time. And it really should have brought us back. It's such a shame that it didn't bring us back. Maybe um, the original front line would have stayed together if it had have done. I don't know. Or maybe that was inevitable that we should uh, split in in uh, various factions at that time. But, uh, you know, I don't know. But it, it, it certainly is. Um, I'm so glad to see it out on release. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, I think the band had, is it 12 or 13 top 40 hits in the UK, 7 top 40 hits uh, in yeah, the United States? Yeah, I, I think it was 12, and, uh, 12 or 13. Yeah, you're right. I think it was actually 13, and I was on 8 of those 13. So you'll get the ped- the pedants who will say, oh, you weren't an original because you weren't on Sweets for My Sweet. But then you say, but I was on um, When You Walk in the Room, and I was on Goodbye, My Love, and Bumblebee, and and what have they done to the rain, and take me for what I'm worth, and all those. <laughs> you know, you, I, I don't think it's kind of fair to be that. People giving you a hard time because you've only been in the band for 54 years. Only been in the band for, well, it'll be 54 years this August. You know? Yeah, that's, you're a newcomer. I wonder, I wonder if they say to Lindsay Buckingham, you're not an original um, Fleetwood Mac, because <laughs> you weren't in it with Jeremy Spencer and all that. Uh, do you think the band is, are you satisfied with how the band is sort of seen in the UK, uh, in the sort of link of the rock and roll history chain? I don't know. We seem to have been left behind a little bit. Um, uh, but the Americans in particular seem to uh, lean towards the edgier kind of bands. You know, the Trogs have always had much more kudos than us in the States and people like the Sweet and um, the Hollies, of course. Mind you, the Hollies deserve it. They had a, a run of hits that went into the into the 70s and even into the 80s, I think. They were so good at picking their records. So, yes, of course, they've got to um, outrank us in that kind of thing. But people talk about our 12-string and the harmonies and all that. And we have fans in high places. You know, we, um, we had... Uh, Marky Ramone sitting in on drums on needles and pins at the uh, the cutting room in New York because uh, the Ramones were fans. Joey Ramone came to see us at the Lone Star Cafe in the early days. I was speaking to Marshall Crenshaw a few years back when I was out in New, uh, New York in I think 2007. He was doing um, a, a concert in uh, in Manhattan. It was a free concert, and uh, someone brought him down to say hello to me. And he was. I really knew a lot about the band. He kept, the first thing he asked me was, "What happened to that big bass I used to use?" So, you know, he he'd done his homework, um, and those people like us. But as far as the, you know, being really thought of in that being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, something like that hasn't happened yet. And I think we're I don't know, I leave it to other people. I think.
you guys are not slouchers. I mean, I'm looking at your website, which is the the-searchers.co.uk, and the list of uh, – upcoming shows uh, through the rest of uh, what's posted for 2018, it's it's ridiculously busy. I mean, you're on uh, pace to play well over 100, right? Oh, well, 100 would be a disastrous year. We uh, normally <laughs> do, we do anything between 150 and 200. Um, even last year, which I thought was a, a fairly easygoing year for us, I actually went through the date sheet to check, and it was 150 dates last year. As I say, that was a quiet year for us. I think we're going to keep it pretty much the same for this coming year because it does take its toll on you. Uh, I know that there are some super fans out there. Uh, I'm thinking of one one young lady who contacted me when she heard I was going to interview you, and we corresponded a bit. She, I asked her, how many times have you seen the band? Over a thousand, she told me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do seem to instill some kind of loyalty in an awful lot of people, which is lovely. And we know the names of a lot of our fans who are regulars who come to see us. It's great. And we're gathering new ones all the time and probably losing a few along the way. Yeah, I mean, I'll bet it's it's a unique thing just to, to have such a long uh, catalog to draw from and to have fans of different ages but uh, the, and the loyalty. It must be wonderful. Yeah, well, the kind of show that we do these days involves a lot of communication with the audience. You know, it isn't just us getting on stage and just punching uh, a, a lot of songs out at them and saying, oh, here's one from our latest album. We do communicate, tell stories about things that have been happening along the way. And uh, there's a lot of ribbing between us, between John McNally and myself in particular, which people absolutely love. And we get to meet the most nights afterwards when we're out signing CDs or pictures or things like that. So uh, that kind of communication goes a long way. Um, and that's the way we do it. I don't do Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. I'm totally anti-social media because I can see the trouble that people get into. And I can see the addiction that um, takes people over. So I don't really want to get into that. I'm just an old fashioned lad and I'm not, I don't sit happily with all that stuff. So communication for us is live shows and speaking to people afterwards. Oh, and a bit and some contributions to our website, of course. I make sure that is my one contribution to uh, what you might call social media. I make sure that um, I do a, a, a newsletter quite regularly on the website and that they get all the information about what's happening with us. Well, it certainly sounds like that's one thing you've done right. You've built an incredibly loyal, rabid following that allows you to play 150 to 200 shows a year. I mean, that's you're not young men. That's that. I mean, that's 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 a lot of work. <laughs> Far from it. Uh, yeah. I mean, John John's 76 now. I'm 74, so it's coming down to that winding down period. I think you know we we've got to slow down because uh, we don't we're pretty fit people, but we just had a, a bad. A spate of illness with John McNally this year, you know, so we've got to take it a lot easier so that we don't uh, kill the poor lad off or me. <laughs> I, it could happen to me next week. You know, it, you can never tell, you know, I am as fit as I've ever been, I feel, but you can never tell when something is going to happen to you. You know, yeah. three months ago, John McNally had a stroke and it meant that he was off work for six weeks. He recovered incredibly quickly and, um, and he was just had to recover his strength because it saps all the strength out of you. He's now back with us and working. But, you know, you've got to watch that uh, you don't uh, put someone in great danger once something like that has happened. But he's unstoppable. He just couldn't wait to get back to work. What is the best thing and the worst thing about being on tour these days? Best thing is getting on stage and doing the show. And the worst thing is uh, 
you, uh, coping with all the awful traffic that we have to deal with, especially in England, which is vile. Yeah, it's, it's, that's the same all around the world. Uh, I think the song Hearts in Her Eyes, your version predates the records version. Was it written specifically for you? I don't know. Well, it was written as a demo. I don't know that they wrote it. I've never spoken to Will Birch and John Wicks about it. We got sent the demo. And in fact, it was John McNally who picked out the demo and said, this would be a great one for us. But I don't know if they heard that we were going in to record and that they wrote it with us in mind or whether it was just one of the demos that they had done and that they thought it would be good for us. But it arrived in demo form. And I assume that once we did it, they probably cleaned up their demo and released it um, themselves. I'm, I'm not quite sure of the whole history, but uh, they actually thought that ours was going to make it. Um, I heard an interview with, uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember whether it was Will or John, on a radio, and they said that when it came out, I said, I think something's gonna, really going to happen here. Well, sadly for them and sadly for us, it, it didn't happen. But we play it on stage most nights these days, and it still sounds like a hit to us. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's a perfect searcher song. It just uh, it's, it is. It, it's the yeah. searchers brought into the eighties. You know, the, we're now into into the new millennium. It still sounds fresh today, and that's the thing about these sire releases. Well, as I say, when I was playing in the car, I'm still so proud of them. They sound so great. So um, I don't know what went wrong. I think we were just. Uh, that the wrong period timing is everything you know i have this theory that when you make it as a new group when you get in the charts you become teenage idols then everyone goes out of fashion for a while and become fallen idols and then if you hang on long enough the graph starts turning upwards again and you start to become living legends if you <laughs> if you hold on long enough without dying and uh, that, that's pretty pretty par for the course for a lot of people i think yeah, uh, Frank Allen, living legend Frank Allen of the Searchers. Uh, we're going to hear Hearts in Her Eyes. Folks can find it on this record. It's a double CD, The Searchers, Another Night, The Sire Recordings, 1979 to 1981 on the Omnivore label, who always do a fantastic job. And folks can get information at the-searchers.co.uk. Let's hear this number one hit record. Uh, Hearts in Her Eyes. Thanks, Mike. It's been great. I appreciate it
can't stop 